Our second scripture reading this morning is 1 Corinthians 16 through 20. 6, 16 through 20. Hear these words. There is more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much spiritual mystery as physical fact. As written in scripture, the two become one. Since we want to become spiritually one with the master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever. The kind of sex that can never become one. There is a sense in which sexual sins are different from all others. In sexual sin, we violate the sacredness of our own bodies, these bodies that were made for God-given and God-modeled love, for becoming one with another. Or didn't you realize that your body is a sacred place, the place of the Holy Spirit? Don't you see that you can't live however you please, squandering what God paid such a high price for? The physical part of you is not some piece of property belonging to the spiritual part of you. God owns the whole works. So let people see God in and through your body. This is the way of wholeness. Thanks be to God. Okay, so everybody just take a deep breath for a minute. I get it. This is awkward. This is like one of those parenting moments where a parent says to their child, right, like, this hurts me more than it hurts you. This is more awkward for me than it is for you. And if it's more awkward for anybody else, it's got to be my two kids sitting there on the front row, right? Like, who wants to hear their mom talk about sex for 20 minutes in church? So, thank you, Jonathan, for going first. Appreciate it. There are lots of reasons that I made the choices I made regarding purity in my early years. Like Jonathan mentioned, some of those were healthy and whole. And some were fear-based and awfully rigid. What I know now that I didn't know then was that in the late 1980s into the early 2000s, our Christian culture was using shame-based techniques to teach its youth about sexuality and purity. Surely coming out of the 1960s and 70s with the sexual revolution, surely the pendulum was going to swing back in time, as it always does, to a more balanced place. But Sarah Mosliner argues in her book, Virgin Nation, Sexual Purity in American Adolescence, she argues that it, this was not just a reaction to the sexual revolution, but rather also in response to the Protestant fear of national decline. You see, in times like that, White, heterosexual American families are seen and promoted as the way to stabilize our society. So in fact, there were many strategic reasons why I and countless others were inundated with messages that we received about purity. But the problem was that we didn't have the knowledge and I didn't have the developed adult brain to fully question what was seeping into the air that we were breathing. So a few weeks ago I posted a question on social media about 
asking people what their personal experiences were with this purity culture. And my Facebook page lit up like it never has in the years that I've had social media. For three weeks, I have been inundated with Facebook messages, personal emails with people sharing with me their story, chronicling their pain, their trauma, and at times even their abuse within this purity culture. Many people shared memories of youth group retreats, retreats that were going to teach ways about how to live in purity. These always included messages about not going too far, which anyone should know only leads youth to wonder, how far is too far? Have I gone there yet? How do I go there? I can recall, Jonathan, I hope I wasn't the speaker at your True Love Waits convention because I do recall speaking at one of those where we passed out cards and had people pledge their virginity to God until marriage. I had friends who read the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye by Joshua Harrison. And in this book, he encourages people to not even kiss their spouse until their wedding day. It's important to mention that Joshua has since apologized for writing that book and has taken it out of print. We were given messages that told us that the only way was complete abstinence if we wanted to save ourselves from AIDS and STDs and unwanted pregnancies and to keep us in good standing with God who called us to live such sexually pure lives that we didn't even realize we were sexual beings with sexual desires. And of course, heterosexual attraction and sex was the only sex mentioned because anything else was complete and utter sin. We were told if, if, if you would only wait until marriage to have sex, then magically you would have the most amazing sex for all of your life. It was the whole uh, 1972 marshmallow research. Anybody remember that? The marshmallow research where you put a kid in a room and you give them a marshmallow and you say, if you can wait 20 minutes, when I come back, I'll give you two. Well, here at First Church some years ago for a much different sermon series, we did our own marshmallow experiment. And I thought on such a heavy topic in which you're so uncomfortable, a little laughter might be good. So watch this with me. Okay? All right, I'll be right back. Deal? Can you wait? 
Okay, I'll be right back. Can you wait? Okay, you have to sit right here though, okay? All right, sit right here, I'll be right back. I didn't tell my kids or Melanie that that was being played this morning. Friends, in purity culture, the cupcake was sex. And if you waited till marriage, then the sex you were going to have was twice as amazing as that you could have had before you got marriage. married. That is the, the story that we told. So in order to receive this prized and desired future, according to Sandy Varelli, in her article, The Generation That Was Shamed by Purity Culture, she said you needed to follow a set of very strict rules, reinforced by biblical messaging. Dress modestly so that no one, you would cause no one to be a stumbling block. Avoid one-on-one interactions with someone of the opposite sex to avoid sexual temptation. And keep your thoughts pure because you can be unfaithful even in your mind. Linda K. Klein, author of Pure, Inside an Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Women and How I Broke Free, argues, shame is baked in the teachings. Since those teachings are formalized in adolescence, they become a virtually intractable part of a person's identity. And that has implications for the person's connections to their sexuality and their bodies throughout their lives and relationships. Friends, I've heard from so many people over the last couple of weeks about this very truth. Asking the question, how was I supposed to go from sex is bad and sinful before marriage to then all of a sudden I'm married and now sex is supposed to be amazing and wonderful? Like our minds and our bodies don't flip-flop that quickly. Donna Coltrane Battle, chaplain at Meredith College, says that we can overcome trauma. It's shame that is so incredibly difficult to overcome. At its core, shame exposes what we feel is a deficiency in our dignity. Shame goes directly to the heart of where we feel our worth and value, and it tears it. It rips it apart. And my friends, we, the church, clergy, well-intentioned Christian families have and do heap unnecessary shame upon people regarding their sexual experiences. Over the weeks, stories have poured in of daughters ceremonially pledging their virginity to their fathers in front of their family's church congregation, of rings being given to symbolize abstinence until marriage, of people spitting into cups of water to demonstrate how being sexually active before marriage dirties you, of women being taken to fashion shows taught how to not be a temptation, and of young people 
when they're suspected of same-sex attractions, having exorcisms performed on them. All of these damage the good gift of our sexuality. And it doesn't help any of us learn how to value sex in a healthy way. I remember being in high school and attending a fellowship of Christian athletes gathering one morning before school. A friend of mine, her mother, was going to lead our devotional. And her message was about purity that morning. And so to drive home her point, she brought a red rose. She passed it around to all of us, told us to smell it, to hold it, to admire it. And then she said, go ahead and and take a petal and pass it to the next person. And then for the next several minutes, she admonished us about how not to go too far and how every time we had sex before marriage, it was like taking a petal from a rose. By the time it got back to her, there were no petals left. And she held that rose in her hand and she said, if you have sex before marriage, you're not going to stop. You're just going to keep having sex before marriage because once you start, it's too hard to go back. And by the end, you'll just be a petalless rose. Now, who wants this rose? Who wants to take this rose home? Well, nobody wanted a rose that had no petals on it. And her visual aid for her speech made a lasting impression. I can't help but wonder, what if instead she had talked to us about the good gift of sex? How to value it? How to understand it? What if she related to us? Helped us make sense of our teenage hormonal bodies and empathized with the situations that we find ourselves in? What if she helped us craft our own plan for our own sexual experiences instead of telling us that any deviation from her biblical interpretation of what the plan should be would cause us to be undesirable and unloved? And let's be clear about one more thing. Yes, purity culture can damage all people. And it can be incredibly harmful to the LGBTQ community when they are left to wonder if their attraction and desire has any place in this world. Yet I believe purity culture was intended to mainly target women. Deflowered roses, well, those are an attempt to keep women in their place. Modesty fashion shows, well, those are to teach women to cover their bodies. Men aren't typically isolated or held back when an unexpected pregnancy arises, nor are they coached in saying no to someone's advances, because the truth is women are expected to toe the line. In fact, we're inundated with messages that tell us it's normal and expected for a man to make advances on us, and that we're the ones who should resist those offers. Women are asked to be responsible not only for their own bodies and purity, but for men's as well. And that is ridiculous. As I was writing this sermon, I turned to the book I already told y'all and showed y'all, you know, like highlighted the entire thing. Well, there happens to be a chapter in here called Lady of Purity. 
And so I saw on this page the scripture we read today. And I'm going to have Blake put it up here for you. Here is what this book claims in A Lady of Purity, what the NIV says. 1 Corinthians 6.18, it said, says, Flee from sexual immorality and all other sins. For a woman commits outside of her body, but she who sins sexually sins against her own body. Now you can go home and read every translation you can get your hands on. That is not in the NIV. What it says instead is flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Really, in my mind, there is no question about it. Purity culture is about controlling women's bodies, and this has to stop. So let's work together for just a few moments on framing what might be a more holistic and faithful understanding of purity. One can include us all. When it comes to sexuality in the first century and beyond, it's important to recognize that sex was often intertwined with pagan culture. There were fertility temples where sexual acts were done as payment for a fertile crop or a growing family. Many of these sexual acts involved slaves young children and women. And these acts did not need to be mutual. No one was expected to give consent because all of those persons were considered property. So when we read about sexual immorality in the Bible, it is important that we read it through the lens of that culture, not our own before we draw comparisons and conclusions. These passages would have largely been for men since men's were the, men were the ones who were educated and could read to begin with, much less were the ones who found themselves in positions of power to negotiate having sex. I don't think it's fair or accurate to approach our ancient texts and the scriptures looking for answers to how far is too far or treating it as a how-to tutorial. Instead, I think we're meant to look for those verses at the value and the wholeness they are pointing us to which is why I like Eugene Peterson's version of our scripture today. <clears throat> he frames our sexuality and our sexual experiences as a part of our whole self, not something separate. He very clearly says we are not meant to use or abuse sex or sexuality. He also places this as a part of all the other ways we are meant to live in connection with God. In a world where we are all so easily objectified and we easily objectify others, we need to be reminded we are not objects for other people's purposes or pleasures. We are beloved, spiritual, emotional beings who long for deep connection. Therefore, our attempts at connection are meant to have value, offer respect and esteem for ourselves, for others, and creation. Our very bodies are good gifts, not meant to be put down or demonized or devalued. They are sacred and holy, meant to be loved and cared for tenderly. This passage that we read today and others are in part to help us see that there, there isn't this dualism between our spiritual being and our bodily being. Jesus came in human flesh to show us that our divinity and our humanity are wrapped together as one. And all of our togethering should honor that oneness. 
and not make any part of our being feel separate. So from my reading and rereading of multiple passages in our Bible about sex, my, and my understanding of God's deep call upon our lives, which is wrapped up in Jesus telling us that all rules and all laws can be fulfilled by loving God and our neighbor as ourselves, then I think that we can say healthy sexuality and sex should do three things in order for us to call it pure and faithful. Number one, it should be honest. Number two, it should be mutual. And number three, it should not cause harm physically, emotionally, or spiritually. Beyond that, y'all, I really don't think the Bible was meant to be a how-to book for our sex lives. Except maybe Song of Solomon. That's pretty sensual. I don't think that the Bible refers to when to have sex, how far is too far, how many partners can you have, what kind of sex is sex and what isn't sex. Instead, it invites us to see how sex can be a healthy and powerfully good experience in our life when it is an expression of care that deeply values another. It, is, it isn't something that was intended to be bought and sold at fertility clinics and temples, nor taken without consent, and not for another person's pleasure at the expense of another's. If, if our message of purity is that we believe we are to be honest about our sex and sexuality, if it is that we believe sex is meant to be mutual in every way, and if sex is not intended to cause harm in any way, then I think we can feel good about our use of the word purity and our desire to be pure in all of our relationships. And if in our talk and our work regarding sexuality, we constantly affirm for people that they are lovely, that they are lovable and desirable, regardless of their sexual experiences and identities, which they don't always choose those experiences. We strive to affirm that no one is a petalless flower cast aside. Then I have hope that we can cast off the shame and the harm done by purity culture and that together we can begin to cultivate a healthier, more faithful, and whole understanding of sex and purity in our world. One that reminds us sex is a mysterious gift to bring us deep intimacy and connection when shared honestly, mutually, and without harm. Thanks be to God for making us people of meaningful, deep connection. Thanks be to God for places of faith that are willing to have tough conversations. And thanks be to God that this sermon is over.